Good morning, church. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in Psalm chapter 18 this morning. I want to welcome those of you watching online and hope you'll have your Bibles open too. As we continue through our teaching series, it's okay not to be okay. You know, as we start today, I was thinking about this message on Friday night. This was a week for me where I was out of town. Hume Lake Christian Camps invited me to go up to one of their high school camps and to speak for the week and to preach the gospel. And it was this incredible, fruitful week and so wonderful to be up there. And then Friday night, I preached my final message and decided instead of sleeping um, at the camp on Friday and coming home Saturday morning, I'd come home Friday night uh, so that I could wake up on Saturday morning with my family. So it's 10.30, 11 at night, I get into my car and I start heading down the mountain and I'm heading down toward the mountain, going home, and I hit the one thing that you do not want to hit, heading down the mountain, heading home in the middle of the night, and that is mountain construction. All right? No, it's terrible. It's terrible. If you listen to folks who live in the mountains, they will tell you there's only two seasons of life. There's winter and construction. That's it. Because all summer, it's just construction everywhere all the time. And then here's what's so irritating about being in mountain construction. Mountain construction is always these lane, like two lane roads, like one going up and one going down. So it's real tight. And anytime they do construction, they narrow it down to one lane. So you can only wait, you have to wait and then do your turn. And you've all maybe been in this. It's frustrating and it's irritating. And what makes it worse is this. You're stuck in this line of cars as far as you can see that way. And as far as you can see back. You can't turn to the right and you can't turn to the left. And if you try to kind of wiggle out of it and go the opposite direction, thinking you'll end around the construction, it only makes things worse. It is discouraging. It is frustrating. You feel stuck. And everything you try to do to get unstuck only seems to make it worse. And I was thinking about that experience on Friday night as I'm driving down the hill or parked down the hill, right? I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the experience of being stuck in something And everything you seem to do to try to get out of that something only makes the situation worse. And in our world, we have a word for that kind of experience. When there is a behavior, a practice, a pattern in your life, something you keep doing that you don't want to do, you feel stuck in, but every time you try to get out of it, it seems to make things worse. And the word we have for that is the word addiction. And that's what I want to speak to you on this morning. I want to talk to you about addiction, and I want to proclaim to you the God who rescues addicts. Because I believe this. Uh, I believe that in this room, this is a subject we need to talk about. There's a wide range of experiences with addictions here in this room. And I imagine for some of you, you've never been addicted to something. You've never had a compulsive habit or behavior or pattern or practice in your life that continues to come back up. But I think for others of you, you know the experience of addiction. Maybe you had an addiction long ago and you've gone through a process and reached sobriety and you've been healed from that. Maybe you know you have an addiction, but you've never actually put the word addiction to it. It's a problem. It's an issue. And you know you need to deal with it. Others of you are in recovery. Others of you have tried recovery and it hasn't worked well. I think almost all of us know someone who is walking through an addiction right now. We're seeing the painful result of that addiction in their life. And we are seeing what's happening to them. And our heart goes out for them. We ache for them. See, there's a wide range of experiences when it comes to addiction in this room. And here's what I want to remind you of this morning. I've said this before, I'll say it again, um, that there are really two types of sermons that we receive. There are certain sermons that are spoken to us and certain ones that are spoken through us. So let me say it this way. In some sermons, the Spirit wants to speak to you. This morning, if you are walking through an addiction... Even if you haven't called it an addiction, but there is a pattern, a practice, a behavior in your life that you can't seem to shake, I believe the Holy Spirit of God brought you here this morning to speak a word to you, a word of hope and a word of comfort and a word of challenge. 
For those of you who are addicted to alcohol or to pills or to pornography or online shopping or online gambling, I believe the Holy Spirit of God has something for you this morning. And again, you may not have put the word addiction on it. Maybe you're too afraid to even say it out loud, but I believe this is a sermon for you that God wants to speak to your heart. And then if you're here this morning and you feel like, okay, that's not my experience, but I have a brother, I have a sister, I have a dad, I have a son, I have a grandson, a granddaughter, I have a best friend, I have someone I know who is walking through the painful process of addiction. I believe that this is a sermon through you. See, in other sermons, the Spirit wants to speak through you. The Spirit wants to speak through you and use you to shepherd and help and love and care for and support the people around you who are walking through addictions. See, for everyone in this room this morning, for everyone who's listening online with us, this is either a sermon for you, to you, or it is a sermon through you. And the wonderful thing we have in the Scriptures are we have resources to turn to, We are not left to our own devices. We're not left to figure it out on our own. But as we turn to Psalm chapter 18 this morning, I think you're going to see the God who rescues us. Indeed, the God who rescues addicts. Psalm chapter 18 and verse one, will say these words in your Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. These first three verses of Psalm chapter 18 are really a summary of the entire psalm. It's this beautiful and epic summary that that David has for us. And from time to time, I want to stop and encourage you to memorize parts of Scripture, either verses or sets of verses. This would be one of them that the Lord is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, that we would commit this to memory in the midst of the journey in addiction. What David does is he summarizes the journey and David writing this psalm. For him, if you look at this last word, it says, save from my enemies. For David, his enemy is Saul. King Saul who is chasing after him to harm him, to destroy him, to kill him. And what we see here is David rejoicing that God has rescued him from his enemy. But here's what we need to recognize every time we read the Psalms. We are not merely getting historical information on how David felt about his experience with his enemies. We are being taught about how God works with us, how God rescues us, and how God saves us from our own enemies. See, this morning I want you to consider the enemy that is addiction. And I use that word carefully and intentionally because for anyone who's walked through a season of addiction, you know what it feels like. It feels like there is something that is seeking to destroy you, to harm you, to bind you. It is our enemy. And yet, one of the great dangers of identifying an addiction as an enemy is you can start to believe that the great battle in your addiction is you versus your addiction. You versus the problem. You versus alcohol, or you versus pornography, or you versus gambling. And what you're told, the subtle message you're told over and over and over again is if you just had more willpower, you would overcome this enemy. You would overcome this addiction. And so, so many people have bought into the idea that if I was just a little stronger, if I just had more willpower, if I could just white knuckle it long enough, if I could just be stronger, then I would defeat this enemy. But here's what I want you to know. If victory depends on your willpower, it is hopeless. I want you to know that this morning. We need to begin at the place where we recognize if it's me versus the addiction, me versus the enemy, me versus the thing that binds me, it is hopeless. 
because I may be able to push through for a while, but eventually the enemy will overcome me. But here's what's so beautiful about these first three verses. You'll notice that David has enemies, and yet he doesn't see himself as the one who's engaged with the enemy. He looks at it and sees not as a conflict between him and his enemy, but between his enemy and his God. The Lord is his strength. The Lord is his fortress and his deliverer. See, if victory depends on your willpower, it's hopeless. But let me speak this over you this morning. If victory depends on the Lord's power, there is hope. There is hope. And to the man or woman listening this morning who says, there's no hope, I've been stuck forever. It's always going to be this way. If the Lord's power is involved, there is hope in your life. To you who say, I have a sister, I have a friend, I have a spouse, I have a child or a grandchild who's stuck and it's never gonna get better. There is hope. And the addiction, the road out of addiction, the road to recovery and hope and healing and victory begins with a hope that we have that things can improve and they will improve, not on our own power, but by the power of God within us. It goes this way in verse four. It says, the cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me and the snares of death confronted me. So David gives his summary of it and then he's going to drop into his problem. He's going to tell about this problem and this issue he's facing. And what I love about David here is he doesn't downplay it. He doesn't minimize the problem. He doesn't pretend it's really not that big of a deal. He doesn't brush it off to the side. He confronts the reality in front of him. Notice the vivid words he uses. The cords of death entangled him. There's destruction coming his way. They've coiled around me. He's being confronted by death itself. David doesn't minimize. David doesn't downplay. David speaks about the reality of the enemy that is in front of him. And I believe if we want to find victory and healing and sobriety from the addictions in our life, we must confront the enemy in front of us and be willing to name it. We must stop downplaying, pretending it's no big deal, or brushing it off. See, I've observed this for years in the lives of people I've counseled and worked with, and I want you to know that this is true, that what you will not identify will only intensify. What you will not identify will only intensify. If you won't call it what it is, if you won't identify it in front of you, that problem will only get worse. So I've worked with hundreds of young men in this church who have been walking through a sexual kind of addiction, they're addicted to online pornography, but the words they use when they start meeting with me are things like, yeah, occasionally I lust and stumble into it. Occasionally I have a hard time. And I know that they will never truly find healing until they're able to recognize I am hooked on this thing. It has overwhelmed my life. I am powerless against it and I need help. You see the difference there? One is minimizing and downplaying and the other is calling it for what it is. It's the person who says, no, occasionally I drink too much. I guess once in a while I have a few too many versus the person who's willing to recognize I've become an alcoholic and this has overwhelmed my life. It is crushing me. It is destroying the people around me. See, when we do not identify something, it only intensifies. But the opposite is also true, that once you say it, then you can start to solve it. Once you say it out loud, once you identify the addiction for what it is, once you look it squarely in the face, then by the Holy Spirit's power, you can start to solve it. David does not downplay. He doesn't brush it aside, but rather he looks it squarely in the eyes. Verse six says this, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. 
So David recognizes the depth of his problem and he calls it for what he is. He, what it is, he, he shouts it out loud and he knows that there's a problem. And what's the very first thing that David does here? It says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to God for help. God hears my voice and he hears my cry. When you notice the verbs there, you'll notice the very first thing that David does in the conflict with his enemy. The very first thing David does when he recognizes the depth of his problem. The very first thing David does is he prays. And I believe for all of us this morning, we need to recognize the simple but clear truth of this, that victory over addiction begins with prayer. The accountability groups are good and books are good and programs and rehabs are good. There are great resources out there, but victory will always begin on our knees in prayer. Victory always begins with us calling out to the Lord, our God. This is true for the addict. It's true for the person who's stuck in an addiction right now, who's so overwhelmed by that thing and they can't seem to break free. It's true for the loved one. When you look at your son or your granddaughter or your spouse or your friend who's addicted, victory begins in prayer. And then if you're saying, okay, I'm addicted, I have just have no idea where to start praying. What do I even pray? Let me offer you three simple words to begin your prayer life and your road out of addiction. Those three simple words are this, I need help. I need help. God, I fall to my knees and I call on your name because I need help. I'm not strong enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do it on my own. Lord, I need your help. See, victory over addiction begins with prayer. And that's what David understands. He understands that against his enemy, he has no power. But through God, he has all the power that he needs. So he cries out in prayer. And then what we're going to read the next few verses here is this vivid and pictorial description of God responding to David in prayer. It's filled with imagery and metaphor, but this is all that I'm about to read is God responding to the prayer of David. Verse 7 says, The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out. He parted the heaven and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darknesses covering and the canopy all around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, the clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from the heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered his enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of the breath from your nostrils. So again, this is meant to be pictures and metaphors and images. It's not literally that God shot down fire or sent lightning from heaven or shot arrows. But what happens here is that God responds to the prayer of David. And the images are supposed to evoke in us this sense that God doesn't just sort of vaguely respond, but he responds in power and in might and in glory and sovereignty and majesty. This is how our God responds to prayer. And again, if it's true that the road out of addiction, that the road to victory begins with prayer, we need to recognize the reality that the same God that responded in this way to David will respond to you when you call out to God in prayer. Can I remind you three things this morning? Number one, God listens to prayer. He hears you. 
If you've gotten yourself kind of twisted up in this space where you think God would never listen to you, your concerns are too small, he's too busy, God's too big of a deal to care about someone like you, the overwhelming and consistent promise of the Bible is God hears your prayer. He listens to you when you cry out to him. God wants to know what you have to say. Number one, God listens to prayer. Number two, God responds to prayer. Again, if you've kind of gotten it into your mind that like prayer doesn't really do anything, God's not really going to respond, it's just really a way of me venting my stuff out to feel better, that's not the response of Scripture. You see here, David prays and God responds. David prays and God moves in power. And then finally, I want to remind you that prayer changes reality. You know, sometimes people have asked me the question or made the statement like, hey, Brian, does, does prayer change God or does prayer change me? And they go, I think prayer just changes me. And I want to kind of affirm half of that to say, of course, you're not changing God. God is immutable, unchangeable. He will not be changed. But prayer does so much more than change me. Yes, it brings me peace. And yes, it brings me joy. But the confession of the scriptures is that prayer changes reality around me. Prayer changes circumstance. Prayer breaks strongholds. Prayer tears down the things of this world. Prayer has the power to move the spirit of God into this world. And so I don't want to just pray that I would have peace or things would change inside of me. I want to pray that reality around me would change. Again, if you are addicted, can you know that God hears your prayer when you cry out? He listens and he changes reality. If you are someone who has a loved one who's addicted, would you recommit yourself to dropping to your knees each and every day and praying for that person? Praying for your kids and your grandkids and your friends and your parents and the people at your work? Would you pray for them knowing that God hears your prayer he responds to your prayer, and your prayer changes reality because that is what God has asked his people to do. It goes on this way in verse 16. It says, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. And I love when the scriptures talk about deep waters, the deep places of our life, the deep places of our heart. See, so one of the consistent themes throughout Scripture is that God is not just interested in managing your external behavior. He wants to change you from the inside out. God is not just interested in you stopping drinking or stopping looking at pornography or stopping gambling. He's not just interested in the surface things. He actually wants to get to something much deeper. The point isn't that you would just change the behavior. The point is that God would reach into the deep waters of your life and heal the deepest wounds and the most profound insecurities that exist within you. So when we think about addiction, here's something we need to make clear that can sometimes get fuzzy for us. That addiction is usually the dreadful fruit, not the deepest root of the problem. That addiction is usually the dreadful fruit, meaning it's what grows out of this deep root, this other issue that's going on in your life. And as long as we continue to focus on the behavior, the pattern, the practice, and not realize that it's rooted in something so much deeper, we will never be fully successful in finding victory, healing, sobriety, and hope. So here's what I'm convinced of. If you are addicted, yes, I absolutely want you to break that addiction. But more importantly, I want you to allow God to reach his hand into the deep waters of your life and bring healing and hope and pull you up out of them. So here's six things that addiction is often rooted in. Addiction is often rooted in the following things. Number one, stress and exhaustion. So for so many people, life is just kind of hectic and crazy. It's exhausting and overwhelming. You don't have the energy you need. You feel worn out at the end of every day. And you've structured your life in such a way that there is no margin. And because there is no margin, you're constantly overwhelmed. And so often, 
our addiction of choice, the substance of our addiction comes in and offers to soothe and manage that anxiety, that stress, that overwhelm we feel. So, so often addiction and healing from that is rooted in addressing the deeper stress and exhaustion within us. Number two, addiction is often rooted in perfectionism and insecurity. For some of you, somewhere along the way, you picked up the standard that you were supposed to be perfect at all times. Maybe it was from your family, maybe it was from culture, but you were supposed to be perfect at all times, but every human being recognizes they're not. And so the gap between that perfect standard we think we're always supposed to have and the reality of our life creates anxiety and stress and shame in us. And to mask and cover that stress so often, we turn to the objects of our addiction. And so healing from addiction actually looks like readdressing the insecurity, the perfectionism you walk in. For others, it's loneliness and rejection. Loneliness and rejection. You've been lonely your whole life, never really deeply connected with another human being, and that disconnect creates space for addiction to come in. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's rejection from people you loved or people you cared about, a divorce you went through, or a loss of a spouse or someone who was so close to you. And so that gap, that relational gap, creates space for something to come in and take the place. And addiction often does exactly that. So that healing from addiction really means addressing that loneliness, that disconnect you feel between other people. For others, it's anger and resentment. You know, the last two years have seen an amazing spike in addiction all across our nation, and at the same time, an amazing spike in anger and resentment. This bubbling over, boiling rage we see in our country is connected to the addictive behaviors because no one can live with that kind of rage for long, so we numb it. We tamp it down with drugs or alcohol or pornography, gambling, shopping, something that allows us to numb it down. It is an addiction, but if you do not deal with the anger and the resentment, you'll never find full healing. See, for others, it's childhood neglect and wounds. It's something from your childhood, a a mom who never showed up or a dad who walked out. It's some kind of wound you received when you were a kid. It's something you went through and, and it shaped you and it's formed you and maybe you've never really realized that. So you can manage the addiction, but really deep down as a small child who was wounded, who was hurt, who was neglected, who is afraid and alone, and you're trying to soothe that fear of you as a kid. And addiction becomes this thing that can only be solved by redressing it, by working through it. And then finally, for some of you, your addiction is rooted in trauma and abuse. Like there are a number of you who have walked through horrific things that were not your fault. You didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it, but it was sinfully and wickedly inflicted upon you. And so often what can happen is in the guilt and in the shame we feel and in the brokenness we feel, addiction comes into those cracks and becomes something that compounds the problem, compounds what happened to us. So here's what I'm convinced of. You can deal with the behavior. You can deal with the surface level thing. But if you never deal with the deep waters that God wants to reach in and rescue you out of, until you deal with that, you will never find victory. You will never find healing. I want to invite you, if any of these things up on the screen here resonate with you, if you go, that's me, I need to deal with some of that. That's me, I've never said it out loud, but I need help in this. I can't do this on my own. I want to plead with you and invite you to connect with our care ministry, our care department here at Calvary. They can connect you with a counselor, with therapy, with a a care partner, with a pastor, with resources to help you work through the deepest wounds of your life. You do not have to go through this journey on your own. You do not have to do this by yourself. There are people here at this church who are skilled and trained and passionate about helping you through this. And I invite you to connect with our care ministry. If you forget the number or, or don't have that, you can just call the front desk of the church. Say, can I speak to the care ministry? They'll put you through. 
We want to help you walk through the deep waters of life because healing of addiction doesn't come from just managing behavior. It comes from the deep stuff. Now, here's what I know. When I say this to a group of Christians, there's a certain kind of Christian thought that thinks I'm trying to excuse or minimize the sin that is involved in addiction. That by talking about childhood wounds or talking about therapy or talking about the deep stuff that has happened in your life, I'm somehow minimizing or excusing the sin that is involved. And here's what I want to be clear about. Identifying and addressing root causes does not excuse sin. That is not the purpose of looking toward the deep stuff of our life, the deep waters. The point isn't to excuse sin. The point isn't to say, no, you haven't harmed others and yourself or dishonored God. The point is to say that it's coming from a deeper place. See, identifying and addressing root causes does not excuse sin. Identifying and addressing root causes helps eradicate sin. The goal is not just that you would be done with your addiction, it's that you would be healed from the wound that started to cause that in the first place. My hope for you is that you would explore the deep waters of your life. You wouldn't settle for behavior change, but allow God to change you from the inside out. Verse 17 goes on this way. It says, he rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. And then listen to these words. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And this is such a critical sentence for you to hear if you are here now and you're walking in some kind of addiction. Because to walk in addiction is to walk in a guilt and shame and embarrassment about yourself. And so often what can happen is that guilt and shame and embarrassment can be reflected onto God where you are convinced that God hates you, he's impatient with you, he's tired with you, you are convinced that the God of the universe is disgusted with you. And I want to speak these six words over you if you are addicted. I want to speak these six words if you have a pattern, a habit, a sinful practice in your life you just can't seem to overcome. I want you to hear these six words because these six words communicate the heart of God to you. Six words. He is not disgusted with you. He is not disgusted with you. Again, if you have convinced yourself that because of your addiction, because of your sinful pattern or practice, he is disgusted with you, I want you to understand that David says the opposite. He saved me because he delighted in me, because he loves me, because he's for me, because he's with me and he's on my side. And if you have convinced yourself if you have convinced yourself that he is disgusted with you, I want you to remind yourself that he is not disgusted with you, not by looking inside. Sometimes people say, well, you just look inside yourself and realize how great you are. That is not what I'm calling you toward. I do not want you to remind yourself of this truth from the inside. I want you to look outside of yourself objectively at something God has done in history. Anytime you feel that God might be disgusted with you, would you look to the cross once more? Because Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, to die on the cross because he delights in you. And in case you've bought into the lie that God will delight in you once you reach sobriety, God will delight in you once you reach a place where you're no longer struggling with your addiction. Can I remind you of Romans chapter five and verse eight that says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like in other words, while you were still in your addiction, Christ died for you. While you were still struggling with that sinful pattern, Christ died for you. Christ didn't love you and delight in you once you cleaned up your life. He said, I loved you at your worst, at your darkest, at your lowest, at the most sinful part of your life. I loved you anyway. 
We want to remind you of that all throughout the series of the great love that God has for us in our pain and our brokenness. One of the ways we've been doing this is in our prayer chapel immediately after this service. Once the service ends, you can slip out those doors right there, head into our prayer chapel, and I invite you to take communion as a reminder that God demonstrates his love for us, that Christ died for us while you were a sinner. And so you can go into the prayer chapel, take communion, you can sit, you can pray, you can take communion on your own. There will be pastors in there who will pray with you. But if you are walking in addiction right now and that shame has overwhelmed you, that guilt has just flooded into you, you feel like God can never love you, would you go take communion immediately after the service as a reminder that when you were at your worst, God loved you. That the gospel is not that you found God, but rather that God found you and rescued you and saved you. Why? Because he delights in you. It goes on this way in verse 20. It says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away his decrees. I have been blameless before him and I kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness according to the cleanness of my hands and a sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. Now, here's what I know. Some of you listening to the text I just read went, well, great. <laughs> He's never sinned. He's kept all the decrees. He's never turned from God. Good for him. That's not my story. And here's what I want to say to you. If your thought here is, well, good for David, he never sinned, I am convinced you've never read the story of David. The story of David is the story of David sinning in ways you've never imagined. The story of David is the story of David sinning in ways you could literally not do if you tried. David sins in deep, profound ways. So what is he saying here? He's not saying he's never sinned. He's saying that his aspiration, his desire is to be the type of person whose ways are always before me. Like, this is the beautiful thing about the psalm. Like, yes, David has sinned and fallen short, and yet his desire is for righteousness. And what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He doesn't say blessed are the righteous. He says blessed are the ones who want it. And if that's you, God's blessing is upon you. If you hunger for it, but you just feel trapped, God's blessing is upon you. Verse 27 goes on this way. It says, you save the humble, but you bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You know, I made the claim at the beginning of the sermon that this is the God who rescues addicts, the God who reaches in and who saves, who reaches in and who rescues. Clarify for us that there's kind of two types of people. There's the person who humbles themselves, and then there's the person whose eyes are haughty, who's, who is filled with pride, puffed up with self-sufficiency. And here's what David is going to recognize. There is a type of person who should expect God's rescue, and that is the humble the person who humbles themselves. And then there is a type of person who should not expect God's rescue from your addiction. And it is the person who is puffed up with pride and self-sufficiency. This, I've got this thing on my own spirit. You, you see what often happens when, when someone's in an addiction and it starts to become obvious to others is that they're confronted by a spouse or a friend or a roommate told this might be a problem. And so often the prideful, puffed up person says a sentence something like this, back away. I've got this. Back away, I've got this. That is the definition of pride and self-sufficiency. 
And when you are walking in pride and self-sufficiency, this, I've got this, I don't need your help, I don't need the church's help, I certainly don't need God's help. When you are walking in this, you should have no expectation that God will rescue, no expectation that God will save, no expectation that in your pride and self-sufficiency that God will lift you up and rescue. But the opposite is also true. See, James chapter four and verse 10 says these words, these words, we find the sentence all throughout the scripture. The words are humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and in due season, he will lift you up. This sentence is found all throughout the scripture and the invitation for all of us, if we want God to rescue us in our addiction, in our patterns, in our sinfulness is to humble ourselves. Now I've said this before, I'll say it again, that humbling yourself is not an emotion. It's not something you feel. Humbling is not primarily about not getting too big of a head or having too big of britches or thinking about yourself or self-promoting yourself too much. No, humbling yourself is not an emotion. It is not primarily something we feel. Humbling yourself is a decision. It is a decision to choose to step into a relationship with God where you are dependent on him and dependent on others. Where your weakness is shown to humble yourself is not an emotion, it is a decision. And here I want to give you five very practical decisions you can make in your addiction, five ways to humble yourself, five very specific ways for you to make the decision to humble yourself that the Lord might lift you up. This is not the only five. This is not the comp comprehensive way of getting out of addiction, but these are five steps you can choose to take if you want to see victory, if you want to see God save. Step number one, confess to God that you are addicted and need help. It begins with prayer. It begins with you dropping to your knees saying, God, I need help. I'm addicted. I'm stuck. I'm in this pattern. I can't seem to get out of it. You cry out and you confess to God. Number two, admit to another human being that you are addicted and need help. You cry out and you confess to God, but you admit to someone else. And for some of you, the easy one is crying out to God, but the scary one, the terrifying one is telling another human being. But once you do that, you take your addiction out of the dark and you drag it into the light. And sinful and wicked addictions always start to wither and die in the light. They cannot handle it. So when I admit to someone else, I am telling them I'm struggling. I need help. I am addicted. This is a problem. Number three, resolve to stop lying about your behavior. When you talk to those who are experts in addiction, those who walk with people through the process, they will tell you that one of the defining characteristics of the addict is deceit, deception. And the reason for that is because the addicted person does not want people to find out about their addiction or the extent of their addiction. So they hide, so they cover up, so they lie. They fudge the truth and they make things up just so no one can ever see the true them. And because they're so good at lying about their addiction, they start to lie about other things that don't matter at all. Like what time they'll be home or whether or not they took out the trash. See, ultimately for the addict, we must come to a place where we recognize that I need to stop lying. I need to stop deceiving. I need to stop putting on a show to impress people and rather just open up to here's who I am. You resolve to stop lying. You confess, you admit, you resolve. And then you submit yourself to a recovery program, plan, or process. Listen, I'm not gonna stand here and tell you that you must do this 12-step program or go to this ministry or, or go to this rehab facility. I am going to say that if you are serious about overcoming your addiction though, you will not and cannot do that on your own. You will not and cannot find victory if it's just you and your strength. You submit yourself to a plan, a program, a process. You become interested in what's out there. 
You, you become the type of person who says, like, I'm going to look into some kind of program. I'm going to look into a sponsor. I'm going to look into rehab. I'm going to look into a ministry or a counselor who can help me through this. And, and we do not become the kind of people who say, you know what, I don't need that. I don't need a program. I don't need a sponsor. I don't need a counselor. The person who decides before they've even looked into it that they don't need it will always be stuck. You know, there's a phrase in the addiction community that says something like this, that we will never be free from everlasting ignorance as long as we have contempt before investigation. I've always loved that phrase. Contempt before investigation. In other words, the idea that you don't even want to look into this stuff because you know better, you don't need that kind of thing. Can I invite you just to investigate it? to lean in, to look it up, to call the church, to look online, to talk to people you know, to submit yourself to a recovery process, plan, or program. And then finally, number five, find a place to serve consistently. Now, this one always seems out of left field, right? You're like, okay, addiction, this, prime, okay, serving? What? Like, what, why is that there? And actually, you'll find in many of the 12-step programs, the 12th step is that you would serve, that you would help other people, that you would get your eyes off of yourself and onto other people. And here's the reason why. Because when you're addicted, your world shrinks. Suddenly, your world is only about the object of your addiction. It's only about alcohol. It's only about pills. It's only about pornography. And your world becomes so narrow. And the reason why addicts can do things that are horrific and mind-numbing to us is because their world is so narrow that all they can see is the substance of their addiction. And part of healing, part of victory, Part of the road out of addiction is to go from narrowing your focus to widening your focus to the world outside of you. And that happens when you serve. When you choose to serve, your world doesn't narrow. It actually expands. You see other people's hearts and their problems and their lives and their worlds, and your heart changes from the inside. Again, God rescues and saves the humble. Those who will humble themselves in his sight. Humbling yourself is not an emotion you feel, it is an action you do. And if you are addicted, I invite you to take these five steps seriously and to step in to the road to healing. Here's the final verses we'll look at this morning, verses 28 and 29. It says, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. Now, I love the two pictures that were given here. Often for those who are addicted, the addiction feels like this army that's coming against them, this unstoppable force but it says, with God's help, I can advance against it. I can actually make progress in this. I'm not stuck anymore. I can move forward. And then the other metaphor here is, with God's help, I can scale a wall. Because often addiction feels like this prison you're in. But it says, with God's help, I can scale the wall. I can get out of the prison that binds me. I can do these things. But you need to know that the message today isn't, you've got this. You can advance against your addiction. You've got this. You can get out of addiction. You got it. You're strong enough. In fact, the message is the exact opposite. See, to those of you who are addicted, there's one sentence I just want to linger with you this morning. I want you to understand this, and then I want the same sentence for those of you who have a loved one who's addicted. Like, all of us together need to hear this sentence when it comes to our addiction. These three words, I am powerless. I'm powerless. Like, if you're addicted, I want you to know if it's you versus the addiction that's just been dominating your life, you don't have the strength. You don't have the power on your own. This is not a self-help. You do you. You're strong enough. Look inside of yourself. You're powerless. And I only speak to you if you have a loved one, a son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, spouse, best friend who's struggling with addiction. So often what we do is we try to take responsibility for their lives. 
We think if I could just tell them this, or if I could just cut them off from this, if I could just take the pills away, if I could just cut them off, and I could just control their lives, it would all get better. But here's the truth. You are powerless too. You're powerless to help someone who you don't have authority over their lives. You're powerless. Now here's what I know. If this was the end of the sentence, this would be the most depressing church service ever, right? Like, you're powerless. Have a great Sunday. See you next week, right? But, but, but here's what's so beautiful about Psalm 18 and the text we just read. It said, with God's help, I can do this. With God, I can do this. So here's the declaration that we can all say amen to this morning. I am powerless, but there is power in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's what we believe. That Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. He died for our sins, rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is returning one day to judge the living and the dead. All glory is his, all power is his, all might and majesty belongs to him. So that when I call out to Jesus, I'm not fighting my addiction on my power, I'm fighting it on God's power. And through the power of God, through the name of Jesus, there is power for you. There's power for you if you're walking through addiction. There's power for you if someone in your life has addiction that you can pray and ask God to move on their behalf. See, we want to be a people who recognize our weakness but recognize God's strength. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to close off our service by singing a song that's become familiar and precious to many of us called I Speak Jesus. And the chorus of that song goes like this. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows burn like a fire. Let me invite you this morning, if you are addicted, if you are feeling stuck in some practice or behavior or sinful pattern in your life, sing this as a prayer over your life as we close today. Don't just sing the song, pray this, believe this for your life, that in the name of Jesus, there's healing. And if you're going, I know someone in my life, someone I care about deeply who is walking through an addiction, would you pray this as a prayer over them as we sing and worship this morning? You see, we believe in a God who rescues addicts and that we are powerless, but there is power in the name of Jesus. Amen, hallelujah, this is our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you just as that David stood against his enemies in your power, we can do the same. I just wanna pray right now, just honestly, for those who are addicted. They're stuck right now. They don't feel like they can get out of this thing. Father, I pray that they would walk out of this service with hope, with courage, with faith. I pray against any kind of shame or guilt that might be creeping in. I pray against the lies of the enemy that says you're always going to be this way. God, bring hope and healing to the addicted in our church and in our community. And then, God, I want to pray for those who have a loved one, someone they care about deeply who's walking through this. God, I pray that they would fall to their knees in prayer. I pray that they would be consistent in calling out to you, rejoicing in the fact that you hear them and you respond to their prayers. So God, help us to be a place here at Calvary filled with hope and healing for the addicts. May the God who rescues addicts, may his name, may the Father, may he be glorified, may he be honored, for from him are all things and to him are all things and all the glory belongs to him. God, as we sing this morning, we pray that you would set captives free. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.